Genesis chapter 25, starting at verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the elder will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out, with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew, I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Now, when I was younger, me and my family, we used to watch EastEnders. I don't know if anyone watches EastEnders anymore or anyone in the church, but we used to watch it regularly. We were hooked on it, gripped by the storylines. We were following the ups and downs of this inner city community in London. Um, But after a while, we stopped watching it because it became a bit too much, to be honest. Um, The storylines were getting increasingly dramatic. There was lots of tension, a bit too much tension. And you you, you always knew that you were never an episode or two too far from there being some kind of catastrophe or crisis. Um, It was getting bleak watching it, to be honest. It was affecting our mood. My parents started nicknaming EastEnders Misery Street or Misery Row. And uh, yeah, we stopped. We stopped watching it. The Christmas storylines... Those are the worst, because that's where the writers really want to get your attention by giving some kind of gripping storyline. And so, you know, you'd have an hour-long episode. There would be families opening up presents, enjoying some sort of festivities. And then right at the end of the episode, bang, someone would get murdered. Or there would be, like, a car crash, or some sort of affair would come to light. Uh, Really, really dark at times. Man, you know, if I was a character in EastEnders, you would not be able to find me at Christmas time. I I would have driven out of town, off-grid, because nothing good happens at Christmas in these, in these soaps. So many people in our country watch these soaps and dramas. And the thing about them is that they are actually relatable, aren't they? We do see ourselves in some sense in those characters. Sure, the drama is dialed up a bit. It's kind of a little bit of an exaggeration on normal life. But nevertheless, we do put ourselves in the shoes of the characters. We see ourselves in them. And the truth is that life is pretty messy, isn't it? Our families are messy. Our communities are messy. 
And today we start this sermon series in Genesis, particularly um, from chapter 25 onwards, speaking about the life of Jacob and his family. Jacob is a key figure in the Bible. He is one of the fathers of God's people, Israel. And the story of Jacob takes up the rest of Genesis from from chapter 25. And it's a brilliant story. You could say it's soap opera-esque, actually. It's got it all, romance, sibling rivalry, marital conflict. There's even a dodgy uncle. It's got everything. And it's clear from the beginning that Jacob and his family are a mess. They're a mess. But Genesis is not misery row. Because at every turn amongst the mess, we see the presence of a good God. The Lord shows up for Jacob and his family time after time, and he shows grace and mercy, though the family do not deserve it. God is so gracious to them. And as we read this account, as we step into the shoes of Jacob and his family, we're going to see truths about how Jesus Christ meets us in our struggles, in the mess of our lives. We are messy people too, whether we like to admit it or not, whether we realize it or not. But we do have a wonderful Savior who is committed to meeting us in our mess and providing salvation and redemption and change in us. And so it's a good thing for us as a church to be looking at over these next few months. So, let's jump in. If you've got your Bibles open at Genesis 25, please do keep them open. We're going to be referring to it. And the first thing we want to see is God's sovereign choice. God's sovereign choice from verse 19 to 23. Now, Genesis, the book of Genesis starts with, as you may know, the creation account. God creates the world, the universe, and it's a beautiful world. It's wholly good. There's nothing evil or stained in it. It's perfect. But after our first parents' sin, evil comes into the world. There is injustice, and it spreads. It affects um, the whole universe. Curse is brought into creation, and all of human beings um, live under this curse. Life is broken people are selfish, and no one lives God, loves God or others as they should. But in the midst of this darkness, Genesis shows us that God has not given up on the creation. He wants to fix the brokenness of the world, and he does so by choosing a man called Abraham. And he makes promises to Abraham. He says to him that through his line, through his descendants, the whole world is going to be blessed. He's going to receive a, a nation and a kingdom And one of his descendants will actually fix what is wrong with the brokenness of this world. And so Abraham is promised, amongst other things, a lot of children and a lot of descendants. And so as we follow Genesis, it tells the story of Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And then as we look at this chapter today, look down at verse 20, Isaac marries a woman called Rebekah. And now they are trying to have children themselves because they're wanting to um, have descendants that will lead to blessing for the whole world. But there's a bit of a problem. So if you look down at verse 21, Rebecca is childless. They seem to be struggling as a couple with infertility. And those of you who know the story will know that that's the same issue that Abraham and Sarah had as well. They were childless for a long time. So the same issue crops up in the family. And it says that Isaac prayed to the Lord 
on behalf of his wife. And the Lord answered Isaac's prayer. Now, this was no quick fix. If you look down, it says in verse 20 that Isaac married Rebekah when he was 40. In 26, verse 26, it says that Rebekah gave birth when Isaac was 60. So 20 years it took. 20 years of praying, 20 years of waiting, 20 years probably with a few doubts in there from time to time. And yet the Lord answers the prayer, and Rebecca wonderfully becomes pregnant. Now, if you thought it would be plain sailing from then on, you'd be wrong, because once Rebecca gets pregnant, her pregnancy is very difficult. It turns out she has twins in her womb, and the twins, it says, they jostle with each other. They're, they're fighting, and this is a foreshadowing of what will happen later in the story. These two brothers, they're fighting before they're even born, and it's intensely painful, and Rebecca doesn't know what's going on. She says, verse 22, in anguish, why is this happening to me? And the Lord answers her in verse 23, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the elder will serve the younger. What God is essentially saying is this, Rebecca, you're going to have two children, and each of those boys are going to themselves have descendants who will become nations, and those nations will be in conflict. But nevertheless, it is the younger brother who will have preeminence over the older. And the idea of the younger brother having preeminence would have raised eyebrows to say the least, because that's not how it worked in the ancient world. It was the firstborn son who gained all the privileges and the superiority. But nevertheless, God has spoken, and so that is how it will be. Now, it's important that we understand the significance of what God is actually saying here, okay? Because this is not just an accurate prediction. God hasn't just gazed into his um, crystal ball and has seen ahead to what's going to happen, and he's just saying what he sees, This is actually God's plan and purpose that Jacob will be served by Esau, the younger by the elder. So in the New Testament, the book of Romans picks up on this passage um, in chapter 9, and it says this, Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand... Not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. So Romans says that Rebecca was told the elder would serve the younger so that God's purpose in election might stand. Now, the word election is a bit of a fancy word. It's a fancy word for for choice, basically. So when we elect politicians to their office, we choose them to serve us. Election means choice. And so what's happening here is that God is choosing Jacob intentionally. And it's not just that God knew in advance that Esau, the older, would serve Jacob, his younger brother. He planned it that way. It was his intention. He purposefully chose Jacob to be the preeminent brother. And it says in Romans, this is not based on anything good or bad, 
that Jacob or Esau had done. They were still in the womb. They hadn't done anything. God isn't basing his decision on their works or what they're like when they grow up. Actually, we're going to see Jacob has some questionable morals. No, God makes his choices simply according to his plans, not based on Jacob or Esau's works. And this gets at a very important principle in the Bible, which is this. The Lord God has sovereign plans that do not fail. He has purpose in all that he does, and those plans encapsulate our lives, including the choosing of his people. God chooses who will be in his people. And he does so not with reference to anything in us, but surely by, by, purely by his, his, his sovereign freedom for reasons that are probably inscrutable to us. But he chooses out of his own freedom. He chooses his people. Now, naturally, this raises lots of big questions. We're going to look at the nature of our own freedom and responsibility shortly. Um, but there are loads of questions that this brings up. And um, I'm going to put a few resources in the weekly news going out tomorrow, um, if that will be helpful. I know it's a big topic. But at this stage, let's just take one implication for us of this. If you are a Christian here today, you are so purely and only by mercy, God's grace, his mercy. Because if your salvation was not ultimately down to God's sovereign choice, then part of it would be down to something in you. Have you ever asked the question, why are you a Christian when many other people are not? People who have been in the same situation as you, who have heard the same gospel as you. Why did you become a Christian? You might say, oh, well, you know, I trusted in Jesus. Yeah, but why did you trust in Jesus? When others have not trusted in Jesus, though they've had access to the same information about the gospel. If it is not ultimately down to God having opened your eyes, then it's down to something in you at some level. Either you were, I don't know, more clever to understand the gospel. Maybe you, were, you had more faith. Or you were more humble to see how much you needed it unlike other people, presumably. Do you see the problem? We will boast in something in ourselves, or we have the opportunity to boast, if it is not purely by God's freedom in opening our eyes. His choice is ultimate. You see, if, if our salvation is based on God's choice, there is nothing in us, nothing in us, that makes us better than anyone else. We can say, Lord, I'm only here by your mercy and grace. Thank you so much. And so, for Christians who have this view of God's control and sovereignty, we should be the humblest people around. We can never look at someone outside the church and think that we're better than them, ever. Because we're only saved because of God's sovereign choice. Nothing to do with the good or bad that we've done. But again, this raises questions, doesn't it? Questions particularly around the issue of our freedom. Back on uh, EastEnders, I don't remember loads of the details of plots and things 
um, from the years ago that I watched it. But there was one particular scene that has stayed with me through the years for some reason. Um, there's a, there was a character, I've forgotten his name, but he, he was maybe in his late teens, early 20s. He was a bit of an overthinker. He used to think really deeply about things and fixate on the nature of life, the universe, and everything. And I remember there was one scene where he was particularly stressed, and he was talking to his friend, and he said, what, what if God is just a 12-year-old kid with a Game Boy? or a Nintendo DS, for younger listeners who are here. And, and it's a legitimate question in one way, one way, isn't it? You know, these are the sorts of questions that are raised. Are we just like video game characters? In what sense can we be held responsible for our actions? Do we have any agency as human beings? Is the world actually just one big doll's house where we are dolls or toys and we're manipulated into certain positions and actions and speech by God without any agency ourselves? Well, the Bible's answer to that question is no. Though it affirms on one hand God's sovereignty, his sweeping sovereignty, his control of all things and his purposes and his plans, it constantly appeals to us as rational, responsible human agents who can make decisions and affect change in the world. And that's shown throughout all the Bible but it's shown here in Genesis as well. So we've seen God's sovereign choice. Secondly, let's look at our responsibility. So let's pick up the story. And God has told Rebecca about the fate of her two sons. And so Jacob and Esau are born. Verse 25, Esau comes out first, and he is a hairy baby. One image. So he gets the name Esau, meaning hairy. And then Jacob comes out, and Jacob comes out grabbing at Esau's heel, so he's named Jacob. And you'll see if you've got a church Bible in the footnotes, Jacob means he grabs the heel, so it's fitting. But it's also a turn of phrase, which can be interpreted as deceiver, which is also fitting, as we will see. And so these boys are born, and though they are twins, they're kind of like chalk and cheese. They're really, really different. Okay, so Esau, it says, verse 27, is a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. Okay, he might be what's stereotypically known as a, a man's man, you know, dripping with testosterone, head-butting sharks, arm-wrestling bears, I don't know, whatever it is manly, manly men do. <laughs> Jacob, he's different in temperament. It says that he, he was content to stay at home. We get this picture of someone who's a little bit more refined, it says he stays among the tents. In Genesis language, that could imply that he's a shepherd because the herds were, were near the tents. But they're different. And then if you look at verse 28, it says that Isaac had a taste for wild game, and so he loved Esau. So Esau was daddy's boy. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So the scene is getting set already for division in the family. And that's going to cause a lot of trouble later on. But in these following verses, we see that the prophecy that God had told Rebekah, it begins to unfold right before our eyes. Look at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. So Esau's come in. He's knackered, knackered because, you know, being a manly man, it's, it's tiring, guys. It's tiring. And um, he sees Jacob cooking, and he wants in on the dish. And the, the language here is really coarse. So, so in the literal um, Hebrew that this was written in, 
Esau says, give me some of that red stuff. Okay. And Jacob, seemingly quick as a flash, responds, first, sell me your birthright. Now, the birthright was inheritance. It was inheritance that the oldest son gained. In Deuteronomy, it says that the firstborn son would gain twice that of any other child. So it's it's a lot. It's a privilege. Not only that, the firstborn would be expected to head up the family when the father died. So it's status as well as goods and material things. Massive privilege. And so for Jacob to ask his brother to sell him his birthright, it feels a little bit exploitative, doesn't it? He's seen his brother at a weak point. He's seen him all tired, and he wants to take advantage of him. It's devious, we could say. Esau's response in verse 32 is interesting. He says, look, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob doubles down. He wants to seal the deal. Swear to me first. Jacob says, and Esau does it. And this is not scout's honor. He's not like, you know, crossed his fingers. By making an oath, this is legally binding. He might as well have brought the solicitors in. This is official. He's handed over his birthright. And he's sold it to Jacob for, verse 34, some lentil soup. And then the story ends quite abruptly. It says Esau kind of eats and drinks and then gets up and leaves. And with that, it's over. There's no self-reflection on Esau's part, seemingly. He just carries on. Now, I like lentils as much as the next person, but I feel like this is a poor decision from Esau. And it would shock original readers. It's like Esau's just handed over his, his pension, his future, his inheritance, his status, And the writer of Genesis is unequivocal about what Esau has done. Look at verse 34 in a summary. Esau despised his birthright. And so this indicates maybe Esau wasn't quite on death's door if after one meal he could just get up and carry on. But for the sake of an immediate meal, he basically flushed his future down the toilet. That's what Esau did. He treated it cheaply. And so, in effect, he despised it, thought of it as nothing. Now, in any family, this would be a stupid thing to do. But in this family, it's beyond comprehension. Esau is Abraham's grandson. Abraham has been promised not only descendants, but um, a line of what will be a great nation who will have their own land. And also, it's, it's all linked in with a relationship with God himself. It's not just about the stuff. There's spiritual blessings here, knowing the God of the covenant who had who'd made these promises to Abraham. And Esau, he's just turned his back on all of that. Can you see the prophecy that God made is already coming true in Esau's behavior? And yet Esau is responsible. He despised the birthright. He didn't want it. He didn't value it. You see, Esau is not dragged kicking and screaming away from the birthright here. He makes a willing decision to turn away from it. And he agrees to this stupid deal that his brother Jacob has made. It was Esau's choice. 
And so here's the tension that the Bible holds. Although God is in control and plans and purposes all things, including the destinies of us, human beings, we are still held responsible for what we do, for our actions and decisions. We are not robots. We are not puppets. We make real choices. And the Bible speaks to us on the basis of us being able to make real choices. So look at how Hebrews 12 uses this account to encourage Christians. It's there on the, uh, on the slide. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. What's the writer of Hebrews saying? Don't be like Esau. Exercise your will. Make a real choice. So nowhere in the Bible does God's control and sovereignty cancel out our responsibility. In every turn, we are treated as people with agency. So how do those two things fit together? How can we have meaningful agency whilst God still has unfailing plans for our lives that will come to fruition? The truth is, I don't know. We don't know. I'm not sure we're going to be able to answer that question fully. But if God is infinite, if he is transcendent and beyond our comprehension in so many ways, surely he has resources to be able to maintain our responsibility and agency while still exercising his sovereignty. I might not be able to understand that, but I could trust that he will do that. So we are responsible. Well, taking our cue from Hebrews then, how do we not be like Esau? The thing about Esau is that he trades in his future for something more immediate, a meal in this case. And the tragedy is that he would have been told about the blessings that were due to him. He would have known about the promises to Abraham. Surely Isaac, his dad, would have told him. He knew what was coming, he'd been told, and yet he threw it all away. And for us here today, we will know and will have heard about the gospel promises of the Lord Jesus, what he promises to his people, what we can look forward to in eternity, what we can enjoy even now, eternal life, a world free of all the suffering and mess that we see, Resurrected bodies that don't get ill, they don't decay, and life everlasting with Jesus forever. Glorious promises. 100% better than anything else this world can offer us. And yet, tragically, many hear these promises, some for a long time, growing up in the church, hearing it week in, week out, and yet, like Esau, trading them in for the equivalent of lentil soup. We hold on to things that may feel like they scratch an itch now, but cannot help us for eternity. We may be tempted to turn away from Jesus so we can get sexual or romantic fulfillment. We may be tempted to pursue being excellent in what we do whether that's in our studies or in our work, meaning that, that that pursuit of that pulls us away from Jesus. It pulls us away from other Christians. Or perhaps we just want an easy life. It's quite hard being a Christian in many ways. 
And following Jesus can just get in the way of our comfort. Now, sometimes these trade-ins come because of a big decision. Sometimes it happens gradually, bit by bit. We drift off like a boat untethered from harbor. But friends, we must be careful not to do this. It's like trading in an inheritance for a bowl of soup. That's what Genesis says. But how can we do this? It is a tough gig being a Christian in the modern world. How do we know we're not going to fall away? How do we persevere? Particularly with the pressures that we have. Pressures that come, particularly at this time of year, starting new school years, um, new seasons at work, back at university. The pressures are big. How do we not be like Esau? Well, we remember that the Lord Jesus did not despise his birthright. You know, Esau, Esau was willing to give up his birthright so that he wouldn't die, apparently. But in order to gain his birthright, the Lord Jesus had to go through death. He stared it in the face as he went to the cross. He endured its agony so that he would be resurrected on the other side and so that he would gain his birthright. But what is this birthright of Jesus's? What is his inheritance? It's you. It's you. That's what the Bible says. So in Deuteronomy 32 verse 9, we're told that the Lord's portion, that is the Lord's inheritance, is his people. In John 17, Jesus prays to his father, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. The Father has given his Son a people. The Lord Jesus has an inheritance, which is us. And so if you trust in the Lord Jesus, you are his inheritance. You are his birthright. And it's not just that Jesus has a birthright, which is a generic people. It is you specifically. He has called you by name. You are his birthright. And he called you before you had done any good, regardless of how much faith you would have, regardless of anything in and of yourself. He chose you out of his sovereign freedom and has brought you to himself. Jesus does not despise his birthright either. He delights in you. You are precious to him, even when you feel like a total mess. Isn't it a testimony to how much Jesus loves his birthright that he would be willing to endure the removal of all comforts in order to get it? Poverty, violence, death on a cross, even bearing our sins on himself. He took it all so that we might be saved and that we might belong to him. And he's committed in the here and now to changing us, to making us more like him. And he, like us, anticipates that day when we will be with him and see him and dwell with him forever. We will not despise our birthright if we understand that the Lord Jesus does not despise his. Knowing what Christ has done for you, what his affections are for you, that's the fuel we need to keep going in the Christian life. It's a glorious thing. 
Now, some here may think, well, that's all good, but what if I'm destined to be an Esau and not a Jacob? What if Christ hasn't chosen me? Whatever I do, I can't change God's plan. What if this isn't for me? But no, 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 that is not how it works. We don't presume upon knowing God's purposes or plans. We, we don't have access to them. That's for him to know. But as we've seen, we are responsible for how we respond to this good news that Jesus gives us. And God uses our responses in his purposes. What does the Bible call us to do? It calls us to trust in Christ, to come to him. So that's what we are to do. If you want in on this inheritance, just come to Jesus. And may I suggest that if you're worried about this sort of thing, if this is raising concerns in your heart and your mind, perhaps that's a sign that the Lord is drawing you and speaking to you. Because for so many, this just does not matter, and it passes them by. But if you're thinking about it, if it you know, creates questions in your mind, if this is a concern, maybe the Lord is, is working in you to bring you to himself. So keep pressing in. And, you know, who knows, in his sovereignty, maybe the Lord is waking people up right now to spiritual realities, and we trust in him. Let's pray. Father, how sobering it is to consider that there is nothing we have that we bring to our salvation. There is nothing in us that is better than anyone else. It purely is grace and mercy by which we've been saved. Lord, we don't understand the nature of your um, control and purposes. They are mystifying to us at times. To think of your control over the whole world, it, it does raise massive questions, objections in our hearts. Lord, help us to wrestle through them and to press into them, but with humility, Help us to know what your word says and to believe it. And help us to be humble, Lord, please. And Father, keep us from turning away from the Lord Jesus, trading in our inheritance for the equivalent of a single meal. Lord, we praise you so much that the Lord Jesus did not despise his birthright as Esau did, that he loves us, that he has chosen us, but he is 100% for us. Lord, give us understanding of that. Help us to see the love that the Lord Jesus has for us individually, personally. And Lord, if some of us need waking up this morning to this spiritual reality, please wake us up by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.